0: Blessed are the peacemakers, for they should be called children of God. Those are the words of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, the incarnate God in the Sermon on the Mount. They apply with special force to the recently beatified young man named Charles or Carl, who was thrust by historical destiny into the heart of one of the most tremendous crises in all the history of Western civilization in 1917 when Charles was the new Emperor of Austria-Hungary, one of the leading participants in the First World War. This was a crisis which engaged all mankind in heaven and hell as well. Our Blessed Lady had a hand in it, appearing at Fatima in its midst. The story of Emperor Charles is almost unknown, but hopefully now that he has been beatified, with one of the miracles required for his canonization already approved by the Vatican, it will become better known to faithful faithful Catholics everywhere. Since I tried to write Charles' story in 1981 in my first published book, 1917, Red Banner's White Mantle, I have had a special interest in Charles and ever since have been a member of the League, praying and working for his canonization. So I welcome the opportunity to speak with you this afternoon about this very remarkable, though almost unknown, young man who tried mightily to bring peace in a ghastly conflict now almost forgotten. What you are about to hear is only part of that story. The rest is in 1917, Red Banner's White Mantle, which is on sale at the College Bookstore. The story begins November 21st, 1916. His imperial and apostolic majesty, Francis Joseph of the House of Habsburg, emperor of Austria-Hungary, was dying. His empire was trapped in a war for the world which undermined the foundations of civilization itself. The war was between two alliances spanning Europe, the Entente, a French word meaning alliance, of Great Britain, France, Russia, and Italy, and the central powers, Germany, Austria, Hungary, and Turkey. On this November day, a young man of 29 was summoned to the bedside of Emperor Francis Joseph. This young man, was an, with an open face and a boyish smile, whose name was Charles, in German, Carl, had become heir to Francis Joseph, to his mighty office and heritage and overwhelming responsibilities. Charles came. Francis Joseph reading him and his wife of five years, dark-eyed, vivacious, highly intelligent Zita, and their little son Otto, four years old, who still lives today, one of the last true Catholic states, statesmen of Europe. Charles and Zita went to see the old emperor. Francis Joseph knew he faced death, and he knew death faced his empire hard beset by the enormous incalculable perils of a world disintegrating under the stress of a cosmically destructive conflict. And he knew the quality of the radiant young couple who had visited him this morning, their goodness, their hope, their relative innocence, their crystal simplicity of purpose and conviction. As the afternoon wore on and twilight fell over Vienna, Francis Joseph said, quote, I took over the throne under the most difficult circumstances, and I am leading under even worse ones, end quote. He was 86 years old and was concluding the longest reign in European history. He also said, quote, I would like to have spared Charles this, but he is made of the right stuff and will know how to cope, end quote. So he was and so he did. The Vatican itself has now said so. These are among the last recorded words of the Emperor Francis Joseph. His heir, that young Charles, has now become a blessed. We must all now become better acquainted with Charles, one of the purest and most spiritually beautiful characters of the generally brutal and murderous 20th century, which I call the accursed century, in which I have lived most of my life. Emperor Charles' life and the gigantic crisis he faced with God's unfailing help it's a subject I am proud to have the opportunity to describe to you today. On November twenty first, 1916, for 28 terrible months, the guns had thundered in Europe unavailing. The whole continent ran red with blood. The bare casualty statistics touched the unimaginable. In the first three weeks of the war, more than one million men. In the year 1915, more than four million. In 1916, two and a quarter million on the Western Front alone. These huge losses were not suffered in a struggle for some overriding moral or religious principle and right that might not be sacrificed at any cost. Except for one small country, Belgium, the war did not involve any nation's essential freedom or existence. It was a war of trenches and attrition, a war that pitted the deadly machine gun against unprotected human flesh. A million men bled or died in 10 months before the Battle of Verdun from February to October, 1916. On the Somme River in the summer of 1916, over 600,000 British and French soldiers were killed and wounded to gain just eight miles, and 650,000 Germans were killed and wounded to limit them to that. Those 8 miles cost the life or a health of 30 men per every foot, 2.5 men per every inch. The war had begun with an assassination in Sarajevo in Bosnia, where it would end no man could guess. By the end of 1915, if not by the end of 1914, it should have been obvious to every statesman in general in Europe that no man or nation could win this war and that the whole of Western civilization was losing it. The extension of the war through 1916, then on through 1917 and most of 1918, was an act of mad folly, unsurpassed and scarcely paralleled in the whole history of the world in magnitude and shattering consequences. Yet, not a single statesman or general of any of the warring powers spoke out for any peace short of victory for his side. It was time for the Lord Jesus Christ to call forth the peacemaker, and He did. Christ had said, "Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God." Who remembered that in this awful hour, the Pope and Blessed Emperor Charles of Austria, in contrast to Charles, stood not only the stubborn leaders of the belligerent nations, but also a revolutionary leader who stood apart, breasting the tide immune to passing enthusiasms, untouched by nationalism, impossible to divert from his ultimate objective. He was a man of coruscating political genius, of diamond-hard, unbreakable will, the kind of man who moves mountains if he has faith, or plums the depths of the abyss if he has a knot. His name was Vladimir Ilyich Ulyanov. He had many pen names, many aliases. The best known of them is Lenin. A case can be made that he was the most evil man of the accursed 20th century, even worse than Hitler. Vladimir Ulyanov Lenin was consumed by one fixed and closely reasoned purpose, to make a revolution in Russia, to overthrow the Tsar and his government in the name of the working class, the Marxian proletariat under the dictation for the party he would build and lead to revolutionize and conquer the world. For 17 years, he devoted himself unremittingly to this end in study, writing, speaking, conspiracy, and an iron leadership. He was fixed immovably on the victory of the revolution to be achieved by any means at any cost. His words were bullets. The most distinctive feature of his personal appearance, his big bald head, was like a bullet. Sometimes it seemed he had a bullet for a heart. If ever one man alone made a world historic revolution, that man was Lenin. Somewhere in Portugal, 1916. A few miles from the village of Fatima, three children were tending sheep in the Serra de, de, de Aire, the Airy Mountains. Their names were Lucia Ababra and Jacinda and Francisco Marto. Lucia lived on in Portugal for many years, and none survived until she was nearly 100 years old. Jacinda and Francisco, who died at a much younger age, had been beatified. On this particular summer day, the children saw a white light in the sky moving toward them, not the blue of the sky or the gold of the sun, but a pure, vivid, perfect white. The light took the form of a boy, appearing about 15 years old translucent, ineffable, beautiful, inspiring in awe, close to fear. Don't be afraid, he said in the ancient introduction of his guide to men on any first meeting, I am the angel of peace. Pray with me. He knelt and prostrated himself on the ground and prayed. My God, I believe, I hope, and I, I, I love you. I beg pardon of you for those who do not believe, do not hope, and do not love you. We do not know the precise day the angel of peace came to the airy mountains, but we know that on an average day in that dreadful summer, there were 7,000 feudal casualties at Verdun and on the Somme. The war that came upon the world from 1914 to 1918 was not only a war of men and nations, generals and armies, monarchs and revolutionaries. The legions and powers of heaven and hell were engaged as well, and a saint who wore a crown was about to be sent into the battle. It was the Christmas season, the time of the birth of God. On the sixth day of Christmas, December 30, 1916, the city of Budapest, capital of Hungary, witnessed the first royal coronation most of his people had ever seen. Shortly before nine o'clock in the morning, Charles and Zita rode in a coach drawn by eight splendid white horses through the brilliantly festive ways to the cathedral, for Catholic kings are crowned in church before the living God who will judge their souls and their rule, as he has now done for Charles. Charles meant every word of the oath he swore at the altar in Budapest, as there are very few kings in all history. There was never a time when fidelity to an oath promising to strive for peace was more needed and more difficult. But this was the word of a saint, not to be broken even in the jaws of hell. A magnificent round of coronation celebrations was planned for Budapest, but Charles, being a saint, could not forget the war, the maimed, the dying, the dead. Secular festivity seemed inappropriate to him at such a moment. Charles declared that he would return to Vienna that very afternoon. He and Zita boarded the train for Vienna in Budapest as a short winter day came to an end. Consciousness of the horrors of war lay heavily in Charles's heart, but yet we may well imagine that not all of the glow of the shared commitment the royal promise, the consecration of his rule to God, which she remembered so well across half a century, but she too lived into her nineties, had departed. You may guess that from time to time they smiled, that sparkling eyes met, even in the midst of world nightmares, as they thought of the opportunity God had given them to serve him for the welfare of their peoples as the train puffed westward through the twilight. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Peace on earth to men of goodwill. As the winter of 1917 climbed down upon the northern hemisphere, Imperial Germany was preparing its fateful and fatal decision to launch unrestricted submarine warfare even on neutral ships carrying passages. On January 20th, German Admiral Holzendorf went to Austria to explain the decision there. Emperor Charles was neither impressed nor convinced. Christ had sent him to make peace. This was not peace, but a horrible escalation of the war. He poured out his objections. Finally, the Admiral told him bluntly, quote, it is too late for argument. Our u boats are already at sea with their new orders. A counterman can no longer reach them." End quote. Charles was appalled. There was nothing that he or anyone could now do now to reverse the fatal decision. Even the grim admiral must have felt the luminous force of the moral disapproval of the young couple who were heirs to the thousand-year tradition of the Holy Roman Emperors, the temporal heads and defenders of Christendom. For at dinner that night, he turned brutally on lovey young Zuda and snapped, I know you're an opponent of U-boat warfare, you're against the war altogether, End quote. She replied, quote, I am against war as every woman is who would rather see people live in joy than in suffering, End quote. Below the gray seas and the white winds, the U-boats were making their way to their stations in the North Atlantic on the Western Sea approaches to the British Isles. Emperor Charles remembered that his Lord had said in his Sermon on the Mount, Blessed are the peacemakers. Already in the month of January, he had begun to carry out a unique plan for peace negotiations, whose initial conception went back to the first days of his reign. It involved the family of his wife, Zita. Zita's brothers Sixtus and Javier were serving as artillery officers in the Belgian army, fighting by the side of the French. At the beginning of December 1916, Charles asked his mother-in-law, the Duchess of Parma in Italy, to make contact with Sixtus and Javier. On January 29th, they met their mother in Switzerland. She told them that Charles deeply desired to discuss peace terms with them, using them as emissaries to the Entente governments, and that he had made arrangements to bring them immediately and secretly to Vienna to confer with him. She gave letters to her sons from both Charles and Zita conveying their sense of urgency. On January 31st, Germany's decision for unrestricted submarine warfare was given to the U.S. Secretary of State by the German ambassador and then made public. In Austria, February 13th, Emperor Charles received Kaiser Wilhelm on a state visit. In their discussions, Charles refused Wilhelm's request that Austria break off diplomatic relations with the United States because the United States has severed diplomatic relations with Germany. Charles also told the Kaiser that he was undertaking a new peace initiative to the Entente and obtained Wilhelm's grudging approval for this, though Charles refused to reveal the names of those with whom he was negotiating. Charles sent another message to Sixtus, explaining that he sought peace above all, quote, as his solemn duty before God towards the peoples of his empire and all the belligerents, end quote. Charles expressed his admiration for the heroic resistance of France and the greatest sympathy for Belgium, being, quote, well aware that she had been unjustly treated, end quote. He then proceeded to offer to help in compensating Belgium for the devastation she had suffered, an astonishing offer which stands alone in the whole history of international relations and makes nonsense of the charge that Charles was simply giving away other people's territory, namely that conquered or claimed by the Germans. In Petrograd, which we now call by the ancient name of St. Petersburg, the capital of Russia, by the ancient calendar, which went all the way back to Julius Caesar and was then still used in Russia. The early days of March were still February, by any calendar, it was still winter, the Russians' capital's subarctic winter, when the temperature fell to 40 degrees below zero. In this month, the long-suffering Russian people finally rose up against the intolerable conditions in that country. The soldiers sent to put down the rising, joined it, and Tsar Nicholas was forced to abdicate in what is known as the March or February Revolution. The old regime was dead dead beyond even the glimmer of hope of revival or recall. Never in history has a monarchy fallen so quickly, so utterly, as the Tsarist Colossus in March 1917. The news of the Tsar's overthrow spread rapidly across Russia and around the world, and to Lenin in exile in Zurich, Switzerland. History's deadliest revolutionary revolutionary maker now has a supreme opportunity if only he could get back to his native land, to the encircling ring of warring nations. On March 6, Prince Sixtus had been received by President Poincaré of France, who was much impressed by the evident sincerity and scope of the Emperor, Emperor Charles' peace proposals, though he expressed concern about the Italian reaction, since Italy was an ally of the Entente actively engaged in battle with Austria. Italy made many claims on Austrian territory, none of which were mentioned in any of the peace terms so far proposed by Charles and Sixtus. Poincaré requested a written statement from Charles of the minimum terms he would accept. On March 19th, Sixtus and Javier received a letter from their sister. Zeta wrote, quote, Do not let yourselves be deterred by considerations which might in the ordinary way justify you in refusing. Think of all the poor men who are in the living hell of the trenches and are being killed by the hundreds daily and come. Quote. On the evening of March 20th, the two princes left Geneva. Crossing Switzerland, they reached the Austrian frontier the next day. On March 23rd, they arrived at Laxenberg Castle a few miles from Vienna near the Hungarian border where Charles and Zita were staying. Zita's had always been an exceptionally close as well as an exceptionally large family. Her father had 20 children by two marriages. She had not seen her two brothers since the war broke out, ever since they'd been fighting on the opposite side from her husband. In this room now at the Luxembourg Palace was a human microcosm of the tragedy of the First World War for all of Christian Europe, and the love that alone could overcome that tragedy. We can only imagine the embraces, the laughter, and the tears. For these sixes, in his restrained account of this extraordinary meeting, the summit of Charles's holy career, as a peacemaker does not speak. But of Charles, he says, he, quote, found him just as affectionate, just as fair, and as loyal to them as in the old days, but grave, almost melancholy, with a few white hairs already at his temples." He was not yet thirty years old, and had been emperor just four months. Charles said said he intended to make one last effort to convince Germany his ally to make peace. If it failed, as all other such efforts had failed, he would make a separate peace. He had little hope of success with the Germans. They all seemed to be bewitched, he said. Regarding Italy, Charles and his brothers-in-law realized that here was, quote, the reef on which their negotiations might yet be shipwrecked, end quote. The magnificent mountains and valleys of the Tyrol, the ultimate heart of Austria, had always been the last refuge of the Habsburgs in time of trouble. The southern half of the Tyrol projected into Italy and was claimed by the Italians. It was clear how difficult it would be for Charles to relinquish any of it. The next evening, Charles gave them the requested autograph letter, specifically setting forth the peace terms he had explained to them the preceding day. The letter concluded, quote, trusting that we may soon be able to put an end to the suffering of all the millions of men and their families were now oppressed by sorrow and anxiety. I beg you to be assured of my most warm and brotherly affection." End quote. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they were to be called children of God. Overwhelming events now impended. During the first ten days of April, the United States of America declared war on Germany. Final plans were made by General Nivelle in France for a new offensive on the Western Front which would add 150,000 more feudal casualties from France alone in just three weeks to the millions already suffered and drive the French army into mutinies. We're done with killing, the French soldiers cried at last, and the German government sent Lenin into Russia on a sealed railway train to make his revolution. The day after President Wilson delivered his war message to the United States Congress, an immensely important conference was held in Germany between the two emperors, Kaiser Wilhelm and Charles. In a last attempt to persuade the Kaiser to give up Alsace-Lorraine to France, an indispensable prerequisite for peace, Charles offered to give Germany the whole of Austria and Poland, including Poland's second city, Krakow, in exchange for Alsace-Lorraine. Kaiser was noncommittal. Throughout the remainder of Holy Week after returning to Vienna, Charles worked on preparing a formal document which was set forth before the, to the Kaiser in the starkest terms, the necessity of peace. Quote, it is absolutely plain, Charles' document said, that our military strength is nearing its end. We must make an end at any price by the late summer or autumn of 1917, end quote. This was no mere theoretical observation on current events and prospects, nor was it only a generalized warning of the dangers of revolution in Germany and Austria if the war continued indefinitely. It had a much more specific reference, for Charles had learned either just before or during his conference with Kaiser Wilhelm April 3rd of a plan carefully developed by the German high command and foreign office to use revolution as a weapon like poison gas in the stalking submarine, or as Winston Churchill later said in one of his most memorable phrases, like a plague bacillus, by sending Lenin and a contingent of his Bolsheviks from their haven in Switzerland to Russia in a sealed railway car in the expectation that they would help knock Russia out of the war. The original plan called for the trip to be made across Austrian territory. At the Hamburg conference, Charles has made known to the Kaiser his total opposition to this plan, which he later conveyed officially to the chairman government. Zita has reported his grounds for opposition as follows, quote, first, this was an unfair and irresponsible thing to do to the Russian people. Second, that the more chaos was caused in Russia, the more difficult it would be to find people to talk peace with. And third, that once communism had got established in Russia, it wouldn't stop there. It was spread to both Germany and Austria, and both Germany and Austria could become engulfed. Evil, he was convinced, could only breed evil, end of quote. And of course, Germany and Austria were later engulfed, just as he had predicted. Every Catholic learns that in his first class in moral theology. A saint knows it very well. As for the train carrying Lenin and his revolutionaries crossing Austrian territory to reach Russia, Charles said, never. The German government routed routed through Germany and Sweden instead. On April 19th, Prime Minister David Lord George of England and French Premier Alexandre Ribot met with the Italian Foreign Minister, Sidney Sonnino to discuss the terms of a separate peace with Austria-Hungary. Prince Sixtus, meeting with Lloyd George on his way to the conference, had obtained from him a promise, not to mention Charles' letter, to Sanino, fearing for his brother in law's life if the full contents of the letter became known to the Germans. But even if he had known the source of the Austrian peace proposals put before him by Lord George, it seems most unlikely that Sanino would ever have given them serious consideration. For he was the architect of the secret treaty of 1915, by which Britain and France promised Italy virtually the whole coastline of the Austro-Hungarian Empire and half of its heartland province, the Tyrol, areas which had been Austrian more than 150 years and which the Italian army had conspicuously failed to conquer even in the smallest part. Charles would never give them all up, though for peace he might relinquish small portions. But Sonnino demanded them all, and he would not consider peace without them all. Regarding themselves as bound by the secret treaty and therefore unable to negotiate further without Italy, Lord George and Ribaut had to tell Sixtus they were at an impasse. Let me just insert one point here. I've, driven by, I've traveled by train through the South Tyrol, which is now part of Italy. The signs everywhere in German, not Italian, in, in German. So the slaughter, the living hell of the trenches, must go on, and with it the communist revolution in Russia. Men have failed to end it all, even a saint. In the terrible words of Paul Nash, describing the Western Front, no pen or drawing can convey this country, the normal setting of battles taking place day and night, month after month. Even the incarnate alone can be masters of this war, and no glimmer of God's hand is seen anywhere. Sunset and sunrise are blasphemous. They are mockeries to man. Only the black rain out of the bruised and swollen clouds is fit atmospheres for such a land. The rain drives on, and the stinking mud becomes evilly yellow. The shell holes fill up with green-white water. The roads and tracks are covered with inches of slime. The black dying trees ooze and sweat and the shell, will never cease. Annihilating, maiming, maddening, they plunge into the grave which is this land, one huge grave, and cast upon the poor dead. It is unspeakable, godless, hopeless. But God made the world, and he will not leave it, though he hang dead upon his cross when the darkness falls as on that day at the place of the skull in Jerusalem, almost 1900 years before the First World War, watch for the candle in the night to become a sun dancing in the sky. God has a vicar upon the earth. In these years of horror, he was a frail wisp of a man, who never in his life would have been fit to charge a machine gun. But Pope Benedict XV's heart and mind and soul were not weak, only his body. In his first statement as Pope, on September 8, 1914, he mourned the bloodshed and pleaded for a quick end to the war just begun. In his first encyclical, Ad Beatissimi, he should remember first, 1914, he asked sadly, surveying the Christian peoples whom God had entrusted with his spiritual care, who could realize they are brethren, children of the same Father in heaven. The encyclical closed with a call for prayer to Christ the giver of peace, and to give a piece into the Blessed Virgin Mary, who bore the Prince of Peace. Constantly pressured to condemn one side or the other, Pope Benedict XV would condemn nothing and no one but the war itself, that unparalleled scourge, that carnage without example, that horrible plague, to select only a few of his epithets for it. On Christmas Eve 1914, in the unforgettable allocution to the Cardinal's bishops and other leaders of the church in Rome, he cried, let the fratricidal weapons fall to the ground. Already they are too bloodstained. Let them at last fall. And may the hands of those who have to wield them return to the labors of industry and commerce, to the works of civilization and peace. A pope may not despair, and Benedict XV never did, but by 1916, he was reaching far beyond this world in his quest for peace. On July 30th, about the time the Angel of Peace came to the children of Fatima, the third anniversary of the war, he called together 5,000 child communicants and delivered to them a homily and an appeal unique in the 2000 year history of the papacy. Quote, we have resolved to betake ourselves as as, on the last plank in a shipwreck to invoking the help of God through the all-powerful means of your innocence. Stretch out a hand, then, dear all-powerful children, to the victory of Christ and strengthen his unceasing desires with your precious prayers. Will your parents, your brothers, all the older members of your families follow in your humble footsteps, we desire that mankind may cease from hatred and slaughter, May God, who spared from death the sons of the Hebrews through the blood which gleamed red on the doors of their houses, spare you and your household and the entire world every further shedding of blood by the merits of that infinitely precious stream which bathed the cross of the divine sun and which today, after the mystic banquet, gleams red on your lips, symbol once again of the redemption and the pardon which Jesus alone can give. To no avail, in human terms, to no avail, the war went on. The Somme, Verdun, the naval offensive, unrestricted submarine warfare, the revolution in Russia. It was May, sweet spring, the season of the risen Christ, But but Europe was more than ever the antechamber of hell. On May 5th, Pope Benedict XV directed the invocation Queen of Peace, pray for us, be added permanently to the litany of the Loreto, and fixing his soul's gaze upon her who bore God in her womb and in her arms to Bethlehem, the loving mother of all Christians, as she is the loving mother of God, he made his ultimate appeal, quote, to Mary then, who is the mother of mercy and omnipotent by grace. Let loving and devout appeal go up from every corner of the earth, from noble temples and tiniest chapels, from royal palaces and mansions of the rich, and from the, as from the poorest hut, from every place wherein a faithful soul finds shelter, from blood-drenched plains and seas. Let it bear to her the anguished cries of mothers and wives, the wailing of innocent little ones, the sighs of every generous heart that her most tender and blind solicitude may be moved and the peace we ask for obtain, be may be attained for our educated world, Eight days later, May 13th, 1917, she came herself in person. It was a glorious spring day in the heart of Portugal. Lucia and Jacinta and Francisco, having been to mass at the little parish church in Fatima, had taken their sheep to pasture in the grassy depression among the hills called the Covita area. As they played happily, they came out of the cloudless deep blue sky, a brilliant flash of light, and then in a few minutes another flash. The children saw a lady clad in white, her face bathed in dazzling light. Her hands were joined in prayer, a rosary dangled from her right hand. In her words to the children, the Mother of God addressed the immense crisis that had bartered barter there from heaven, say the rosary every day to obtain peace for the world and an end to the war. Every day after that, the children added three Hail Marys for Benedict XV to the Rosary of Peace, which the Lady had asked them to pray. And they waited for June 13th, when she had said she would come back again. During May 1917, the peace initiative of the Emperor, Char- Emperor Charles through Prince Sixtus, <clears throat> made little progress. Through Sixes, Charles offered to give up the Italian speaking portion of the South Tyrol called the Trentino. Italy would not budge. As Charles and Sixes had feared, their peace effort was indeed erect on the reef of, reef of Italy. By the latter part of May, the French government had lost all interest in Charles's peace offer. The noblest and most disinterested peace offer. By any belligerent in the whole horrible course of this war. For nearly three years Pope Benedict XV had waited in vain for the belligerents to listen to prayers and pleas and reason and make peace themselves, but they would not. Whether and how much he knew of Charles' peace initiative through Prince Sixtus has never been made clear. Knowing or sensing the likely fate of any such attempt as Charles had made, even after all the long futility and horror of the war, the Pope was now prepared to advance peace proposals himself. On June 29th, the Holy Father sent Bishop Eugenio Pacelli, the future Pope Pius XII, to the Kaiser. Pacelli gave him Benedict XV's personal handwritten letter pleading with Wilhelm to make a greater effort for peace. Kaiser began working himself up into a temper. Why didn't the Pope denounce Anton atrocities? Finally, carried away by temper, the Kaiser had the appalling effrontery to suggest to the Pope edify the world by dying as a martyr to stop the war. Pacelli, in reply, could have spoken of white martyrdom, but we do not know if he thought this outburst worthy of any reply at all. Kaiser Wilhelm II was no longer, if indeed he'd ever been, master in his own house. General Erich Ludendorff, the incarnation of the Prussian militarist, the man who conceived the plan to send Lenin to Russia to make his revolution, later the only significant military supporter of Adolf Hitler in his first bids for power, the Munich Beer Hall Putsch, would become the effective ruler of Germany. The next day, the last day of June, Pacelli was in Austria where Charles assured him that he was indeed prepared to discuss and negotiate the cession of the Italian-speaking parts of the South Tyrol to Italy in return for peace. But none of the sacrifices Charles was willing to make were of any avail. The war went on. In October 1917, Lenin and the Bolsheviks seized the government of Russia with almost no resistance. The war that Charles had tried so hard to end made the communist takeover possible. The principal historical consequence of the First World War was to be the establishment for all the rest of the 20th century of the most fearful, pervasive, far-flung tyranny in the history of mankind. A tyranny so gigantic and so evil that in the end, only the mother of God in person and a man utterly devoted to her, a Pole named Carol Wojtyla, who became Pope John Paul II, could conquer it. Because of the selfishness of the other rulers of the time, Charles's efforts to end the war, before it was too late, had failed. The intervention of the United States in 1918 finally forced Germany, starving and torn by revolution, out of the war. His own empire disintegrating, Charles, emperor of Austria and apostolic king of Hungary, heir to the Holy Roman Empire, had refused years to advocate or cling to power. He had voluntarily withdrawn from government in the hopeless final days of the war in the autumn of 1918. He stood ready to return whenever his people needed or wanted him again. Generally condemned as a disturber of the peace because of his later attempts to return to his ancestral homeland, Charles, the only sovereign of the powers engaged in the First World War who had truly sought peace, was banished to the Portuguese island of Madeira without any source of income. The government of the new Austrian Republic confiscated all of his family property in Austria. He left his crown jewels with an Austrian lawyer in Switzerland who sold them and disappeared. Forced by lack of funds to move at the beginning of March 1922 to a house in the damp, ever misty mountains of Nira with only green wood to burn for warmth, Charles, never physically strong, caught a cold which rapidly developed into pneumonia. On March 25th, he had a raging fever, which the doctors could not control. Zita almost never left his bedside. On March 27th, he was anointed. Holding a crucifix, he called his 10-year-old son Otto to his side. Of their conversation, Charles said only, Quote, I had to call him to show him an example. He had to learn how one conducts oneself in such situations as Catholic and as Emperor, as Catholic first. A priest was in the house all during Charles' last days, saying Mass, giving communion. Charles declared, quote, I forgive all my enemies, all those who have made me suffer, and all who work against me, As death approached, Charles prayed hour after hour with Zita's hand in his. Often the prayer they said together was the rosary. Madeira was Portuguese territory, Fatima was not so very far away. Had Charles and Zita heard of our lady's coming in here, we do not know. On March twenty-first, 1922, Charles' mind began to wander, to reach out toward the beloved land he had lost. He said to Zita, why don't they let us go home? I long so much to go home with you. Let's go home together, we're already so near. At another time he said calmly and clearly, I must suffer like this so my people can come together again. When on the morning of April 1st, it became increasingly difficult for him to speak, Zita said prayers for both of them softly against his ear. Just before noon, he looked up at her and said, I love you so much. Then he asked for Viaticum, caressed the crucifix, murmured, thy will be done, and died with the name of Jesus on his lips. No saint has died a holier death. He was whisked at once to heaven, where, as God has told us in Scripture, every tear was wiped away, and all that he endured was swallowed up in the beatific vision. In 1972, after the first steps in the Catholic Church's long process of beatification and canonization had been taken in the case of Emperor Charles of Austria, his tomb on Madeira was opened 50 years after his death. In the presence of his son Otto, the bishop of Feldkirch in Austria, the bishop of Funchal in Madeira, and many others, Charles' body was almost completely incorrupt. The war was over at last. The ghastly slaughter ended. Charles was almost universally forgotten, except by the church, which always remembers saints. He was beatified by Pope John Paul the Great. Zita lived on into her 90s to revisit Budapest, where so long ago she had been crowned queen and empress after her 90th birthday, honored at last for what she had been for so many years. And now we know what Charles was and is, and what he so nobly tries to do. May we all meet him in heaven.